Welcome to yet another episode of Thro- uh, Throwdown Thursday's follow-up show, Shark Bites. I am your host, Patrick Rayhold. You can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd. I am here today, uh, back-to-back weeks, with uh, uh, some fantastic writers. I'm here this week with uh, Mr. Anthony McGowan, uh, author of Dogs of the Deadlands, which drops September 13th, which is today if you're listening to this uh on the day that it was released if not you are already able to purchase it because you're listening after this dropped so go out and get this book because uh we're gonna set it up nicely for you and you're you're definitely gonna want it uh so anthony thank you so much for taking taking the time to uh join me today well it's a pleasure so far patsy the angry nerd i love that (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a nickname someone gave me a few years ago, and I've just stuck with it, and I've I've run with it. Uh, my grandfather was also named Patrick, and everybody called him Patsy, so it's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. So your book, Dogs of the Deadlands, uh, drops today, uh, and I was fortunate enough to get uh, an advanced copy of it. And I have to say, I've read a little bit of. Uh, what you you wrote at the beginning of it <clears throat> and like you're saying it's a, a bit self-aggrandizing but uh i think there's nothing wrong with having some confidence uh and kind of talking about you know maybe your influences when it comes to this but the first question i have for you because this this book uh, according to your friend phil earl is steeped in richard adams plague dogs and watership down uh, Dogs of the Deadlands is a wonderful thing. It moved me and stayed with me for an awfully long time. Now, people love dogs, and I know several folks who, you know, like their pets more than most people. And I can say that I am I am one of those. Um, there are several heartbreaking moments in this book that we will we will talk a little bit about. Uh, especially the one towards the beginning. Are you a big dog person yourself? Uh, um, well, I've written quite a few dogs about books. My, my last book that I think came out in the States was a book called um, How to Teach Philosophy to Your Dog, which was a kind of introduction to philosophy. It, it taken the form of dialogues between me and my little white Maltese terrier. It's called Monty. So I am a dog person in the sense of having a dog, but I wasn't brought up with dogs and the only reason why we have a dog in the family is because my daughter um, pestered us into getting this dog, promising us that she would walk it and feed it and pick its crap up. But of course, I ended up doing all that. So <laughs> I acquired a dog and became a dog person almost by accident or by, by default. Um, but, you know, it, it's impossible to ha- have a dog and look after one and not and not to form that bond. You know, we, we, we love each other. The, and, and I think that's... Uh... You know, one of those things that, you know, it, it's definitely the 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 old story. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll totally take care of it. Are you going to walk mm-hmm. your dog? Nah, I'll just wait. Dad will do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bookings. Uh, but, it, you know, like that's, you know, that's also the life of having kids, I suppose. Uh, sure, uh, sure. <clears throat> but I, I also don't doubt that your daughter loves the dog as well. Yeah. The responsibilities. <laughs> well, she gets all the, all the fun stuff. She gets the cuddles, and I get to pick up the poop. Yeah, I mean that's. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much that's the trade-off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this takes place, uh, in Russia, just outside of Chernobyl, mm-hmm. and we are introduced to our first human character, who now that I'm thinking about it, 
you might have a little bit of uh, influence from your daughter. Uh, <laughs> That's not incorrect. <laughs> um, and it's her birthday, and it is the night the Chernobyl disaster occurs. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the first thing she falls madly in love with this puppy. Like it's love at first sight. It's absolutely mm -hmm. amazing, and. A few hours later it's like all right you have to leave the dog here yeah yeah it's you know again being a dog person and and caring about you know having a pet having animals like i've had a couple of dogs in my life i can't wait to get another one <sighs> the thought of having to leave behind like i would rather leave behind a kid because i think at least a kid <laughs> would be able to uh Walk, you, a, a child would be more likely to walk, be able to walk up to someone and be like, hey, can you help me? And they'd be like, you know what? Let me let me help you out. <laughs> a puppy, on the other hand, people love dogs, but they're like, eh, this dog's bugging me. Like, get out of here, dog. You know, like <laughs> how difficult was that to to kind of write if you were thinking about your own dog? Well, yeah, so um, it's worth bearing in mind that this is actually true. This really happened. So once the nuclear plant blew up, um, the, the biggest local town is a place called Pripyat. And all the people the next day were evacuated. They were told they'd be able to come back in, in three days, a week maximum. Uh, they couldn't take their pets with them, so they left them behind, but thinking that they'd be back to rescue them. Um, so the, the, there's that background of truth to it. But then also, I did remember when we got our little dog, and that first day when when Rosie, my daughter, saw him, that massive wave of love and excitement that she felt for this little dog. Um, and so I projected that back onto my main character, Natasha, who's six. And then literally the next day, they're wrenched apart. And so and that, that initiates the two different storylines in, in, in the book. There's a human storyline which follows Natasha through her life always with this great gaping hole in her in her heart, really, because of the puppy that she's lost. And trying to find that 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 love and that wholeness again. Then also, there's a storyline of the dogs left behind. Um, so the puppy does survive, um, uh, and uh, and then and has to somehow survive in this incredible new wilderness. Because once uh, the people left the area, um, it started to become rewilded. So the animals moved back in, and so you had what was almost a pristine wilderness. But still, in the background, you've got that smoldering nuclear plant. So I'll kind of rush into talking about the, the, the plot, the story now. But but yeah, certainly I channeled both that that truth background, that th these things really happen, but also that direct experience of watching that bond of love that instantly forms between a little girl uh, or a little boy and their, and their new puppy and the loss, yeah. the tragedy of being torn apart. Yeah, because I mean, that's that's one of those things like I watched the the HBO miniseries about Chernobyl and, you know, it was more like how it happened what was going on the response to it and like mm. that's usually what people think it was like oh man like you know think about all the radiation and those people had to leave their homes and it's like think about the animals like at least with zoya there was uh you know the zoya was not left zoya is the name of the puppy by the way was not left in a locked apartment like so many other animals were yeah um i won't get into how or why because i think that's that's you have to read that for yourself um 
but so many of these animals died of hunger or thirst because or, no or the came army came back, back killed them so they you know the soldiers moved back in there and shot them if they could yeah just to make sure that they didn't spread any contaminants yeah, exactly. anywhere like that's it that's one of the aspects of this this disaster that i think gets glossed over you know especially through history mm. um and the other thing that people like really don't realize is that it wasn't that long ago it was it was 1986 so it hasn't been 40 years yet <laughs> like that to me is wild yeah although what's really interesting is that um so there was part of the of the forest which became known as the red forest it's in, in in the book as well that was very heavily contaminated and pretty well everything in that area was killed all, all the plant life was killed uh all, even all the bugs were killed um but in the wider area which had which was still contaminated in fact the wildlife has thrived so um you know once the people moved out um bison so what you call buffalo moved in um, moose um bears came back in there and most dramatically wolves for, for my part of the story uh, and the scientists have been monitoring their health over these over these decades and they're pretty much fine um even though that they are still contaminated with this background radiation they're okay so well you know the, the big threat to them wasn't the radiation it was the people that have been driving them out or keeping them out um so that's you know the kind of background to the story and actually my way into this was um Several years ago, I, I saw a documentary. I think it was a National Geographic documentary about this rewilding process. There's one particular image that just totally stuck in my head. So this uh, wolf pack uh, had moved in and sort of taken over an old abandoned farm. There's one particular shot in this uh, where this wolf kind of scrambled on top of an outbuilding and jumped on top of the farmhouse. So you had the wolf on top of the farmhouse. In the background, this great sarcophagus they put around the the nuclear plant and that that juxtaposing of of of, of of nature wild nature and then this this industrial landscape was incredibly um Im impactful and i thought from that moment on I, I knew i had to write a story about it and also i think the same documentary did mention some of the dogs that survived and most of these dogs were just hanging around the nuclear plant because again what people forget is that the nuclear plant was still running uh, even after the, the disaster shut down one of the reactors, but I think there were two more reactors that were carrying on the whole way through. So there were still engineers working there. And the dog kind of hung around the, uh, the the plant and were fed by the guards. And pretty much they were the only ones that, that survived. So, I mean, from, from my point of view, another one of the interesting things about this was looking at how dogs and wolves interact. Um, so just to briefly outline the plot. So Zoya, the puppy, manages to survive with the help of some people. Uh, has um, puppies, and the the main story follows two of her puppies, um, Misha and Bratan, two brothers. Bratan has, um, uh, I suppose, disabilities. He's got his, his back legs don't work very well, um, and it's mainly their story and how they survive in this, this wolf infested <laughs> wilderness. So I did lots of research on on what happens with feral dogs, um, and uh, it's it's on the whole not 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 pretty. Um, so I, look, I read every single scientific paper about feral dogs, looked at you know every kind of bit of film evidence. And if you go on the internet, there's loads of CCTV film of dogs and wolves interacting, normally with a wolf coming into a human area, farmhouse or a compound. And these interactions generally last about 30 seconds at the most, and then the wolf kills the dog in every single case. And it, it, often it's in literally seconds. 
and, and so because you know w w wolves um that they're, they're, they're serious predators as you as you know and um uh, and they just they kill the dogs in seconds even the big dogs and this is against the kind of background which is that dogs and wolves are essentially the same species so that they can totally interbreed obviously wolves have certain adaptations which make them able to survive in the wild better than dogs but they're basically the same species yet those interactions are lethal in every single case except <laughs> crucially for my story uh, the only time when the wolf won't kill and eat the dog is if um it's uh a male wolf usually and a female dog who's on heat and then <laughs> then romance may may well blossom but it, apart from that the dogs are going to die um so that's the kind of background to, to this and, and also you know dogs do find it very hard to survive um even without wolves in in the wild again did so much research about this and i couldn't find a single case anywhere in the world of where dogs really could survive living like wolves they've just lost those adaptations so nearly always when you get feral dogs they're in some way kept alive by humans there's a few exceptions you get dingoes in australia uh, which are dogs which live wild there's one or two other cases but on the whole that they, they they just they can't do it they've lost those hunting skills that their, their jaws aren't quite strong enough and also really crucially um with a with a wolf pack um, the the males help look after the cubs, um, but with domestic dogs, you know that the males never get involved in that in that bringing up the cubs. And again, that that destroys that that economy of that that that, that wolf or dog pack. Um, so yeah, so all that's kind of built into my into my story. It's dogs fighting wolves in the wilderness, <laughs> which well, is I, I should, fascinating. I say, one of the reasons why why um, Zoya and Misha can survive is that they already have a bit of wolf blood in them which gives them that that edge in that survival context yeah and that's that's established in like the second chapter so like that's yeah. not we're not going to get into any spoilers or anything like that um but you do get to experience a little bit of uh of like the puppies you know first you know kind of awakening and like their eyes aren't open yet but like everything's being told like from misha's point of view which is which is yeah. just very interesting uh especially when they meet the bear cub uh and in the uh, early goings of the book that's that's very interesting because of the way that you um kind of weave that um that experience and how it's the the point of view of the different different dogs, and then the two bears that are are, are involved. Yeah. Um, I thought I thought that was really really well done, and I liked it uh, quite a bit. Um, well, it's one of the lighter elements in the book. I mean, the book is quite dark in places. It's, yes. it's quite dark, quite violent, and so you need those few moments of light and humor uh, to to wrench you out of those dark 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 periods uh, and that's certainly yeah. one of them well, but again that's no, also I... based on on um on reality you know in, in the wild you know dogs and sorry wolves and bears are wary of each other um but they're then um they, they occasionally kind of almost collaborate and they, they, they can be if not friends at least they can be not enemies and, and that's what happens in in my story yeah like at that point it's like we're not adversaries we're not fighting over food we're not you know there's no real reason for us to have a confrontation other than we're two different you know apex predators mm -hmm. um 
so I like I like the way that this whole thing plays out, especially the way the chapter ends. Um, I thought it's like, all right, this is this is nice. And, you know, it's definitely something that I could see happening. And then the end of the chapter, it's like, yep. And that's that. Like, that's <laughs> just how things are now. OK, like that makes sense. Like, that's that seems like the natural order of things. Um, it's smart. And it, I like that, you know, in, cause this is geared towards a younger audience. Um, you've written lots yeah. and lots and lots of stuff, uh, some darker than others. Um, but I would say this, this isn't maybe as jovial as, you know, Einstein's underpants save the world. <laughs> um, which is, uh, another another book that you've written um but it's definitely it's definitely for like older kids you know definitely teenage like you're not going to read this to your six-year-old uh, no i think that's well m most of my books you know i've written about i keep trying to count up and get the wrong number each time i think i've written about 52 or 53 books and most of my books are probably ya they're, they're young adult books so aimed at teens old, older teens um I've written books for quite young children. I think with this book, I was really trying to go for as wide a readership as possible. So I think in certainly in the UK, it's being sold as mid-grade, which is sort of mm -hmm. nine to 12. But I'm hoping it, it's that plus teenagers, and I'm also hoping the adults read it. So you know, that, that those influences that are on this, books like Watership Down, um, and also the books that were really important, even more important than, than Watership Down in this, was um, Jack London's books, The Call of the Wild. Yeah. And White Fang. Now, yes. Even though, uh, at the time, I mean, Jack London, I think, wrote those as adult books, but they quite soon became the kind of books that, that young people read, that kids might read. Now, again, I'm hoping that this might be the kind of book that appeals to both children, but also the sort of adults who enjoy that kind of wild uh, wilderness adventure and who like reading about wolves and dogs fighting. And who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember reading... Uh both the call of the wild and white fang as uh, as a kid i was probably nine or ten yeah. years old yeah, yeah. but there and are definitely books that you know that yes. i, I reread recently and I, I i'm you know i was astounded how how dark they are and violet and also how, just how brilliant it's a wonderful writer jack london really oh wonderful. yeah but i mean the the whole the whole like how I can't remember the guy's name. I remember that the 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 dog fighting ring and the bulldog that clamped his jaws yeah. on White Fang's <laughs> yeah. throat, and the guy yeah. who owned him was Beauty Smith. I haven't read these books in thirty years. Oh, so. your memory's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, the guy's owner, stuck a <clears throat> a gun barrel in between the the bulldog's yeah. mouth to get the yeah. to get him. Yeah. But like, he got this dog, this beat up, you know fighting dog you know i like uh, it was it was yeah it was really well written i just i remember that impact so much i think i was in fifth or sixth grade the last time i read that and like yeah it was you know there's definitely some of that influence in uh in your your book here because it's representative of you know the the alpha hierarchy in the wild <clears throat> but being told from the dog's point of view, like, you know, there's this, you know, these motivational 
uh posters and these at like these this alpha male bullshit that you hear sometimes <laughs> where it's like if you're not the lead dog the the view yeah. never changes but when you read white fang was it white fang or call of the wild i i'm trying to because they're very very similar they, they blur together a bit yeah yeah there's a scene where the sled dogs get into a fight and as a punishment one of the dogs gets made the lead dog, not because he's the biggest or the strongest, but because in the viewpoint of the dogs, he looks like he's running away. <laughs> so like, you know, from the, from the dog standpoint, that's not the alpha, but from like, you know, the macho bullshit standpoint, if you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. Like, it's like, yeah, well, if you study this and understand it, you'll know why you don't want to be the lead dog. Do you know what? This is one of the fascinating things about the research for this was about the history, the way that scientists have looked at how wolf packs organize themselves. So the whole way of thinking about it with an alpha at the top and then a beta and then an omega at the bottom came from um, a scientist who, who studied a pack in a Zurich Zoo. So it was... Um, it, it, it was a slightly curious pack. So that, that, that most of these wolves weren't related. Um, and also they're in quite a confined space. And that's when you got that, that strict hierarchy. Uh, and a bit later, uh, and, and, so, and, and then also, but from that, um, that, that terminology of alpha and beta and so forth was, was then taken out of that wolf pack context and put into human context with exactly the kind of bullshit consequences you're talking about. Also it became quite influential in, in dog training. The idea that you, as the owner, have to be the alpha, and so you've got to make sure that the, that the dog knows that you're the you're the boss. So that was all quite influential, and interesting. Then, about twenty years ago, when people started to look at wolf packs, particularly in, in Europe, they found that they didn't seem to match this exact this strict hierarchy. So rather than having um, these unrelated alpha, beta, and uh, and omega, basically all the all European wolf packs consisted of a mother and a father. Uh, that, so that the, the 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 breeding pair, and then one or two generations of cubs, so they were quite quite small, and so then interesting that 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 seemed to overthrow that existing idea of the strict alpha and beta and omega hierarchy, um, and, and that again kind of suited a more liberal way of looking <laughs> of looking at wolf packs. Uh, it seemed to overthrow that kind of patriarchal, aggressively kind of I don't know capitalist way, way, way hierarchy. Um, <laughs> But now more recently, when people have actually so so it became very uncool to talk about an alpha and a beta in relation to a to a wolf pack. But more recently, when they found that you get bigger wolf packs, so in places like Chernobyl and also when they studied them in in uh, in America, where especially Yellow Yellowstone, where you get these massive mm. packs of maybe twenty five wolves in them. In fact, you go back to that again, a kind of a hierarchical structure again, because they're not all quite so closely related. So it's almost well, I suppose what the there's a very um, long way of saying that um, that the wolf packs adapt to the environment, and occasionally you get a loose structure, or just a family. Occasionally, you get a, a stricter hierarchy. So, in in my story, because it's uh, the, the wolves are in quite big packs, you get a hierarchy of an alpha at the top, an alpha male and female, and then an omega at the bottom. Even though that was kind of became unfashionable, but it's also not entirely untrue. But so the, the interesting point is the way that these things, but but that's both science influences stuff in the wider society but also ideas from the wider society influence how scientists look at their subjects yeah i, I really I, enjoyed doing all that research 
no 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 i i love this stuff like you know when it comes to like this type of you know the science and like you know clearly you have a passion for you know the story that you've written and you know putting in all this time and effort to making sure that you're you know doing things correctly uh that's greatly appreciated i'm one of those people that likes to look at stuff and it's like well you know that sound you know i'm not as nitpicky as like well you know under in in the little mermaid when they did under the sea <laughs> like uh sound travels differently with high-pitched uh sound and low-pitched sound so like they wouldn't be able to harmonize because it would just sound like nonsense you know i'm not like that but i am but you are the, a bit like that clearly <laughs> yes well i'm i'm more like if you're going to say, here are my rules, A, B, C, D, E, and F. These are my rules. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I've used this example a thousand times. Last week, uh, I was talking to uh, A.G. Riddle, who wrote a book called Lost in Time that was all about time travel and quantum entanglement and everything. And so it's like, okay, here are the rules. And so when you say these are the rules, and I bring up uh, the movie Ant-Man all the time. And it's like, all right, well, you can shrink down. You can be six feet, 200 pounds. But when you shrink down to an inch tall, you're still going to have the mass of a 200 pound man. And that <laughs> that applies to anything that's affected with PIM particles. Oh, really? <laughs> then how are you able to carry a 60 ton tank on a keychain? Because that's <laughs> according to your rules, that still weighs 60 tons. It's just smaller. So, I'm no, getting, I'm getting the angry nerd now. It's coming through. Yes. And this is this is why I received that nickname. But it's like, don't tell me that these are the rules and then immediately disregard. Yeah. I am totally fine suspending my disbelief for any time traveling robot has to come back in time and kill the guy that's gonna you know prevent him from taking over the world. Yeah, that's fine. You know, as long as as long as you stick by those rules. Sure. An island full of dinosaurs, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> totally cool like i don't mind just stick by the rules that you set forth that's all that matters i don't care about anything else i love to suspend my disbelief oh a little kid that can't pack a suitcase becomes a death trap engineer because two guys want to break into his house and steal a vcr fine fine just tell me how we cleaned up the entire house within like the six hours between their arrest and and his everybody coming home. Just tell me how he cleaned the tar off the stairs. That's all I want to know. <laughs> but yeah, um, clearly you've done your research and you know what you're talking about. And, you know, you're able to, you know, just be like, yeah, well, this is how I did this. And here's the real world examples. And this is, you know, like I have I also have no issue if you take a little bit of creative license, like you're saying, like, you know, the the dog packs or the wolf packs will will adapt based on the situation. Well, I mean, that's the whole point of nature and survival, like oh, yeah. Yeah. adapt or get left behind. And so it's like for the purposes of this particular story that needs to be told, you know, this is the type of wolf pack that you're going to have. So I, I thought, uh, I thought that was brilliant and uh, I'm never going to uh, tell someone, Hey, stop talking about all this scientific stuff. <laughs> That's not what we're here for. No, we are here for that. Um, so I had a, a, as we talked about a little bit off air, I have several questions that we've already uh, 
you know, what kind of research did you do on this? Clearly yeah. extensive. Exhaustive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got to say, um, also, research is much easier than actually writing. So it's uh, it's one of those slightly displacement activities. You do it instead of just getting down in front of your computer and hammering away at the keyboard. See, I, I've, I, you know, I, some of the stuff that I've written and some of the stuff that I'm in the process of writing, as I'm doing research, I'm like, okay, you know, how do I make sure that this is believable? How can I have this happen? Um, did you find that as you were doing this research, like you start seeing all these different branches and it's like, okay, this is what I'm researching here. Oh, did you know about this? Oh, did you know about that? You know, how often did that happen to you? And I'm not talking about like getting sidetracked, but it's like, oh, this stuff is interesting too. But like the more you started doing research and the more you wanted to learn and improve your knowledge of the subject matter, yeah. it's like, it's like you're going farther and farther. Like, all right, here's my story right here next to me. And then like five minutes later, it's like, where the hell did my story go? <laughs> oh, there it is way off in the distance, you know, kind of like being out on the, yeah. on the ocean. It's like the land was here two seconds ago. I mean, I'm still on my <laughs> boat, but where the hell did the land go? How yeah, often really, did you find that happening? Uh, all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, a particular distraction was, so I, I wanted to try and find, uh, as I said before, videos of wolves and dogs interacting, which do normally uh, end badly for the dogs. Uh, but then it's impossible to see those without seeing all kinds of other well, animal fights, I'm going to put it. So, And the thing is that I'm a, I'm a gentle kind of guy. I, I love ecology. Um, I've always been obsessed with the natural world. But it's quite hard to resist watching uh, films of animals fighting uh, in, in the wild. And so I, I did kind of find myself distracted by watching, you know, jaguars fighting with caimans in, 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 a, in, in, mm -hmm. in a, the Amazon. <laughs> uh, or indeed bears fighting with tigers in the Russian Far East. Or... Um, uh, or, or the different kind of animals. So that that was a, a maybe a, a a dark place that was drawing me into that hideous world of of an, animal and animal fighting. Um, so I had to pull myself back from that. But but yeah you, you, yeah that that's the, the way that the modern world conveys knowledge is is through a series of links. You know is that that we're that we're the hyperlink world, and every every wiki article or whatever you read or or, or the website on anything, it's there's always those links that pull you off in different directions. It's both the kind of glory of the modern world and also it's the, the, the terror of it. So you do, you, it's very hard to stay focused, especially when yeah. it's, it's fun <laughs> and writing yeah. is hard work. And it's, and it's something that you're finding interesting. And it's like, now, after watching all the stuff, did you find you needed, like, say, a palate cleanser? It's like, oh, man, that... <laughs> oh. 12 wolverines yeah. against a toddler ah uh, that that one was one <laughs> click too many uh let me watch some kitten videos <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was a, an element of that uh. oh yeah like that's just I, I i mean i get it like there's always like i mean like i would i would read that stuff it's like oh that's really interesting all right let me just open a new tab like that that'll I'll get that. I'll get to that one after. Let me finish reading this. Yeah, it's interesting that you should mention wolverines because I've got a slight obsession with, with wolverines because they're they're both in North America and also Europe. And mm -hmm. I was trying to get the maximum number of, of of predators in my in my world that I could, but they just they just don't live in that part of Ukraine as it is now. So I couldn't I couldn't shoehorn in wolverines to interact with the bears and the uh, and the wolves. I'm afraid. So sadly, no wolverines. That's see, you know. 
that's the type of thing I'm talking about. Like you did your research, you know, like, all right, yeah. So there's like Wolverines, there's tigers, there's bears, there's crocodiles, there's two sharks uh, that adapted to live on land. Like, you know, like there's an elephant that's just running around stomping on everything. You escape from a Russian circus. Like, I'd I'm read that you... book. Though. I would read that book. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't go down that route like and you actually and I want you now you've done a ton of research on on these animals that have lived in this forest and and animals that don't live in this forest now I know there are people who get confused and there are people who think that because things sound the same they are related uh in your uh expert opinion um Please explain to people why wolverines and wolves are not the same animals. <laughs> okay. Ah, the wolverine, Gulo Gulo is the Latin name. Well, wolverine is basically the biggest weasel in the world. It's part of the, the musculid family. So they're related to polecats and badgers. Uh, they're all that, that family. Um, I think there is one bigger member of the weasel family, which is, I think, the yellow-throated martin, which lives in the Russian Far East. Um, but so that that's simply diff completely different, unrelated species, um, and both kind of equidistant, I think, from bears. So wolves, canids, part of the dog family, wolverines, completely different, giant weasels, basically, serious giant weasels. Oh, yeah. Never met yeah. the wolverine. <laughs> no, no, and there's a reason why the Marvel character was named after him. <laughs> um, you know, I've had this, I've had this conversation with more than one person, and it's like, yeah, wolverine's really? a wolf. <laughs> Like a wolverine oh, yeah. is not a wolf. It's like it's like a badger. No, wolverine's a wolf. Why would they call it a wolverine? Why it sounds like wolf? Like, oh my god. Can you ride a seahorse? You, you cannot. Does a seahorse look like a regular horse? No. I'm imagining you in in a bar having this argument. You've both got a beer, you and the other guy, and you're you're thrashing it out <laughs> the meaning of, of wolverines. <laughs> it's it's wild it's like here's a picture of a wolf here's a picture of wolverine of course then someone could be like yeah but you know what the difference is in genetics between uh you know a a, a timber wolf and a pug it's like yeah i <laughs> i get that those are very similar on a genetic level it's like yes you also share more dna with a banana than most things so just someone is stop stop we're gonna go down a, a, a road that you will not be able to navigate because you just simply do not have the interest in understanding um so my first question that was that i had written down because we had we actually haven't i haven't asked any of the questions that i've written down because so much of this has already been answered through our our conversation See, for me, I, I do interviews very differently than most people. It's like, okay, question one, question two, question three. No, we bounce all over the place, and most of the questions get answered through conversation. It's but the best way. It's the best way. I, I think stream of consciousness is the best way because you're going to think of things that you may not. It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, like I did not expect in any of my notes or reading it at all that we would talk about Wolverines. Like there was that wasn't. <laughs> at all in in the in the the prognostication i had for this episode <laughs> but um the question that i have for you is how well do you remember the actual event of uh uh 
the Chernobyl disaster, as we are recording this on the anniversary of another uh, yeah. famous disaster, uh, September 11th. So how well do you remember the actual event? I remember it very well because, um, I, you know, we're just in the UK, we're closer than you are in, 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 the, in the States. Um, so there was that, that genuine sense of, of threat of it happening. Also, I had some, I had a friend who I was at, at the time I was at college at Manchester University. One of my friends was studying Russian and she was based in, in Kiev, which is not that far away at all there. So there's a, a sort of general panic that went through the university about these the students who were, who were there stranded um, in, the, in the path of the, of the cloud of radiation. So it was a, a big part of our, of our lives. Um, and, and also it was, uh, I, I was studying politics and philosophy at the time. And, you know, we studied <laughs> the Soviet Union, which at that, that time seemed like this edifice that would never collapse. And um, it, it's been plausibly argued that the Chernobyl disaster basically brought about the end of the Soviet Union. Because uh, at that time, Gorbachev, who, who, who died recently, I think, I think a good and possibly a great man was trying to reform the Soviet Union. And his plan was to turn it into a version of Sweden to make it, you know, more democratic, more progressive. Um, and that, that plan absolutely relied on cheap energy, <laughs> uh, you know, to, to be able to finance that transition. And, that, you know, Chernobyl it did two things. It, it meant that nearly all their nuclear power stations were taken offline because they were all dangerous, all had to be, um, had to be fixed. Um, even and also the cost of fixing Chernobyl was colossal, and it totally destroyed the economy of the Union. And then it, it you know, not long after that, it, it collapsed politically. You then got a, a decade of, of appalling kind of kleptomaniac oligarchs taking over in Russia, and then you got Putin, who was only able to grasp power because of that chaos that he emerged out of. So all yeah, the, the, the current crisis in, in the Ukraine, the awful Russian invasion, you can trace it all back to that, that one event, that explosion in, um, in, in Chernobyl. So, yeah, again, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there. No. I do remember it very well because of that. that we felt close to it. And also there was that direct contact. My, my friend was there. It turns out they were fine. <laughs> and, and Kiev was never badly contaminated. But it, it felt very real. Oh, yeah. Like whenever, whenever something like this affects you, uh directly like you know the the you know the morning of september 11th i was in uh i was in my english class in college and we were having conversations someone's like oh did you hear that a plane crashed into the twin towers and the first thing i thought it was you know a few years earlier uh, a baseball player had been flying a private plane and crashed into the empire state building not intentionally but I was like, oh, wow, you know, that's weird. And then we had this one kid in the class who was just so dumb. Uh, but he was he was like, well, we should have like giant guns on the top of all the buildings so that we can shoot down airplanes. And I was like, so where where would all the flaming wreckage and thousands of gallons of fuel end up? What happens if you miss? Solution to that kind of problem. They imagine themselves with a twin Gatling guns. Uh. It's like, yeah, let's just rain fiery, fiery metal all over the streets of New York at eight o'clock in the morning. That's that seems like a good plan. And then a little while later, we we're all dismissed. We didn't know what was going on. I got home and started watching the news and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Well, I, I remember that that day as, as well, because I was just um, I was shopping and there's a big department store near where I live. 
and I was in the you know the TV department, and I realized all these people were gathered around the TV sets in the in the department store. And I, I joined that that crowd. So I had that kind of communal experience of, of this going on. It was um yeah, astounding experience, really. That's a, yeah. so the wrong word. Um that 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 sense of the horror and the terror of it filled this whole big department store yeah it was it was surreal um but you know the the personal connection i had like i have i had an uncle that lived there and he was on the last train out of uh the station before the tower got hit so but apparently that that type of thing runs in my family because i had a, a a relative who decided to I forget if she skipped school or she was late or like there was some reason she was she was supposed to be at school, but she wasn't. And that was uh, August 6th, 1945. Uh, So she did not go to school in Hiroshima that day. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) So she survived that, which was uh, she lived on like the outskirts of town or like a suburb type thing. It's like, oh, I'm not going to school today. I'm gonna go hang out with my friends. It's like that was probably a good call, wow. which is like, it's just weird that that you know seems to run in my family. Yeah, but, but it's so interesting sort of comparison there between Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the and the the hundreds of thousands of, of deaths and and Chernobyl because um, did you know how many people do you think died in a consequence of Chernobyl, both immediately in the area and in the wider world because of cancer? Put a number on it. What do you reckon? I'm trying to remember. I, I think I, I don't know if I've seen it, but you know, um, I don't know. Probably a couple of hundred at least. Well, it was a yeah. They think about 170 people died because of the, the, like the firefighters from the radiation immediately. But people also assume that there would be this huge spate of cancers caused by the by the radiation. And in fact, it, it, that never quite happened. The, the, the highest number I've seen is about about two thousand people across the world who died because of cancers caused by the radiation. So that this is not good. It's not a good, good number. But given this was the world's no. worst ever nuclear disaster, it's surprisingly few. People kind of assume there would be tens of thousands killed. Um, it's mainly because the the cancer tended to get caused, certainly in in the Soviet Union, in, in Russia and the Ukraine was a thyroid cancer, which is, you know, if you're going to get cancer, it's one of the ones to get. It's fairly easy to treat. Um, so it, it didn't have that that huge, great, um, drastic effect on mortality that, that, that a lot of people assumed. And so some people have now said that even though in the wake of Chernobyl, a lot of European countries like that, Germany, um, um, actually that was more to do with the, 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 the Japanese one, but it, it, it seemed to be a, a big argument against nuclear power. Um, but um, probably, you know, in retrospect, it showed that even with a terrible disaster, nuclear power probably causes fewer deaths than coal mining and air pollution from that. So, uh, so I'm not necessarily on one side or the other here. Uh, but you know, thinking about about global warming and all those kind of consequences there, it's uh, definitely nuclear power suddenly takes on a more positive kind of light. I think, given that. The worst disaster you can imagine wasn't that bad. Yeah, like it's uh, when you sit there and you think about the the numbers, it's like wow. Like, although I I wouldn't, 
only for you know there's there's one reason I wouldn't put Fukushima and Chernobyl in the same uh category Thanks for reminding me of the name of the Japanese with the, the Japanese one like, uh, I, I so, some, dementia. <laughs> no, no, no like the, there's just a lot of information being you know uh thrown out right now but when the 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 Fukushima one that was because of the earthquakes and the tsunamis like that yeah. was a natural yeah. thing like it was operating fine yeah. um with Chernobyl it was like oh there's a problem no there isn't but no there's there's definitely a problem nope no, just do your job. I think we should check this out. No, bang! Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I read the so the one of the biggest sources for the the um uh, the HBO series on Chernobyl was a book by a Russian um historian called Plokny, I think his name is. And I, I read the book; it's a brilliant book. Um, but what they clearly did in the TV series, which is a brilliant TV series, so well acted, mm-hmm. well written, looks amazing. But they they simplified everything, and they wanted a kind of clear um, good guy, bad guy kind kind of setup there, without that central scientist played by Corin Redgrave as the good guy, and the the bureaucrats and the and the um, and the people running the plant as, as the bad is. But it, it was much more complex. That so even the people in the plant were doing their absolute best, and there was this series of almost almost unpredictable. Um, at chance events that led to that that final catastrophic explosion and that you know they, they, these weren't corrupt people they weren't stupid they just made some understandable mistakes at this terrible consequence so you know it, it was um and, and weirdly so uh, but also the, the the main central scientist i can't remember his name now played by corin redgrave that in fact according to the to Plockney, every single decision he made was the wrong decision <laughs> but because he <laughs> You know, to trying to to first of all bomb it with concrete and water. These were and that these were all the wrong decisions, but made for understandable reasons. So the world is much more complex than than than, than dramatists want to make it. <laughs> yeah, you know, we what? see you know, to, to simplify <laughs> and to, and to have that good versus evil evil conflict going on. Whereas the world's difficult and complex and messy. Oh yeah, yeah. You have to have like it's like all right this. Like, oh, he has a mustache. He's definitely the bad guy. Like, <laughs> you know, definitely they take some creative liberties. I mean, with as with anything, like I, I always refer people to, like, if you ever read the book In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, like he got all of his research by sitting down with one of the two guys who committed all the crimes yeah. and they became friends. So, like, when you read his account, it's like, oh, he was just an innocent bystander. Oh, man, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, he was, yeah, yeah he was, maybe he was, like, you know, susceptible to, like, being influenced by this other guy. But it was the other guy that, oh, man, what a jerk he was. And it's like, no, they were equally complicit. You were just friends with that guy. Please don't write your histories this way. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, like that's it's uh, we're like way off topic now, but that's that's okay because it all tangentially tangentially all sort of connects back to what we're talking about. (laughs) Everything connects. Yes. Um, Well, it's hard to talk about, you know, a, a, a story set in the direct aftermath of Chernobyl without talking about Chernobyl, which then 
you're like where were you when this happens and you know yeah. there's always like where were you when this happened where were you when this happened and it's like okay i remember these things obviously i don't remember chernobyl i remember the challenger explosion more than chernobyl yeah. even though they were uh m only months apart yeah but i remember watching the challenger in school like hey we're gonna watch this and ooh, yeah that was that was an awkward conversation in kindergarten to have oh, um, but but also with, with challenger there was that moment when it happened it was captured on on screen so it had a it had an incredible dramatic impact whereas maybe trouble was a bit more diffuse that you know the the, the russians can try to control the flow of information right so like we watched exactly we yeah. watched the challenger yeah. like yeah, yeah. and that if it had even if it had been switched like say this was you know chernobyl was you know in texas and you know this was a russian uh space launch like watching it made it real mm -hmm. the other one was like you didn't see it happen like you're saying but maybe it would be different because it was closer to home. Like that was the other thing. Like that was, yeah, yeah. those were American astronauts. That was, you know, Krista McAuliffe, the teacher. And yeah. um, so I know we've been uh, going for about an hour and that's what we, we discussed, but I do have a couple more things I want to get to, if that's all right with you. Yeah. I've got, I've got nowhere special to be. Don't worry. <laughs> all right. Um, so we talked a little bit about, uh, one of my other questions, like, why did you decide to write this book? And, you know, why do it the way you did? Um, you you already answered that question before I asked it, you know, talking about that National Geographic documentary with, you know, the the shot of the, the wolf on the on the farmhouse with, you know, Chernobyl looming in the background or the 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 plant looming in the background. So there are uh, a lot of strong emotional moments in this in this book so my question for you is what was the most difficult part of of writing this Ooh, um well um it's very hard to answer that without giving away the ending to the book so um i, I suppose that um the, the, the book ends with a a very poignant moment which is both a kind of a, a reunion and a separation at the same at the same time, uh, and I, I really had to get into the mind of my characters and experience that that incredibly intense combination of those two things of of, of union and loss. Um, so it's you know it's a book actually that all the way through I suppose deals with with death, <laughs> um, and that that's that's you know that's always a, always the big one the big issue. Um, and so I, and I also I, I knew that what the, that the story needed this incredibly emotional, impactful end. So hopefully, all the way through, what what drives you as a reader is, I suppose, the the, the sense of adventure, the excitement of reading about these conflicts, um, with then the emotional human storyline as, as well. But I really wanted to bring it all together, and, and at the end, I wanted people to have that that um, to come close to tears but also come close to joy it's really inarticulately explained here um but i think that, you know i wanted to have that that maximum impact by bringing together those two extreme emotions those those that that heartbreak and that happiness together um and w when i i, I kind of wrote it uh and i thought maybe maybe i pulled it off 
and I put my, my manuscript down for a few days and, and came back to it and um, getting that bit of distance. And I did have that lump in the throat, little glistening of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of, uh, of moisture in my normally cold a cold eye. Um, so yeah, yeah so, so there was a challenge there of, of, of that ending of making it emotional and sad and happy all together. And I, I hope I pulled that one off. Well, but the, but the oh, sorry, this is asking about the most emotional moment. But well, how, the, how difficult? Yeah. How difficult? Yeah. I mean, actually, for me, the for, that, that was quite um that was a writing task that I thought I probably was up to. You know, I've written lots of emotional scenes in, in, in my 52-book career. I should stop writing that. It's too many books. But the, for me, the biggest challenge was actually these two storylines. So there's this human storyline and then quite a complicated dog storyline. And so I had to get the timelines to work together uh, and then, you know, and have the two dovetailed and you cut from one side to the other. And that was a technical challenge that nearly broke me. <laughs> As, as a writer because you know my normal way with writing is i get an idea for a story and i sit down and i start typing and what comes out six months later is pretty much the book i don't have to do much much planning um you know the, the, the sort of plot just grows out of the character and the situation whereas here it was a as i say this great technical challenge of making it all work together and that's not what i'm good at it almost needed spreadsheets i've got writer friends who have uh um, you know, when they're writing a book, they have post-it notes all over the wall with the different plot lines. I don't do any of that. In a way, I should have done that; it would have been better. But I just tried to keep it all in my head, and it was it was too much for my my poor little brain, I'm afraid. So that that was the greatest challenge: just simply getting the <laughs> that the structure and the plot to work. See, it, we, I have a similar style. Like, if I have a like just quick story, it's like, all right. A to Z, this is what's going to happen. I can just sit down and write it out. But it's like, all right, now I'm world building. Now I'm like, <laughs> I'm taking on a grander task. Yeah. Like, I have a notebook for something that I've been writing for a few years, and it's going to be another few years before it's even close to finished. And it's just like, it's like, all right, I, I know that we're getting from here to here. I know where the story is going. I know the principal players, but like they have to go to these different places. And like, there's a lot of side quests and fetch quests. And there's this, like, where are they in the world? Like, what is the landscape? Where are the mountains? And it's like, I have maps yeah. that I've drawn. And it's like, I have just like notes. I have like this sticky note. And I was like, this is what this looks like. This is what that looks like. And this is where this yeah. is. And it's like, oh my God. Like, I don't understand how some people do Because when I'm writing each chapter, it's like, all right, here's the backstory of this person. I just sit down and I write it. I don't have any of the notes. And that's like, oh, shit. Now I got to put this in the right <laughs> timeline. And like, when was this person? When did this? Uh, why do they Why do they have this necklace? Is it an amulet? Like, what does it do? Oh, man. Well, I mean, like, this story is like, <clears throat> it's like, there's magic and 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 science and like it's it's so weird it's there's so much to it and it's like I'm like I'm gonna write a story and I'm gonna put everything I can imagine there's gonna be <laughs> werewolves and aliens and I assume it's gonna be a trilogy it's, it can't just be one but it's gonna be a trilogy or a... oh it's at least a trilogy like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> like. Except that uh, since George R. R. Martin, a trilogy is not enough now. We need at least five, ideally seven. 
Oh, I it, it could be like I. Oh. Yeah, it's funny. We actually on our um, on our uh, our three hundredth episode of Throwdown Thursday, we had a big live event, and we had some folks on. And we talked about uh, we did trivia, and one of the trivia questions was how many books are in the Hitchhikers trilogy. Uh, and... <laughs> uh, well, I mean, he once made the joke about that the fourth in the trilogy. I think there's probably now at least five or six or there's there's six that he wrote and there's or there's uh, five that he wrote and there's a six that was written after his his death right there we go <laughs> so it's like how many books are in douglas adams and it's like somebody's just like six it's like oh sorry there are six books but there's only yeah. five written by him oh uh, got you on a technicality when yeah. like the normal person would say three <laughs> there's three in a trilogy hence the name it's like no sorry there's five <laughs> but it's it's you know keeping track of things um definitely in a story like this like you're saying like you have to line up the timelines and you've got so many different characters and you're uh anthropomorphizing uh animals which to be fair, if you have a pet, you anthropomorphize it. Like that's just the way it is. Like you imagine yeah. their inner monologues and and. Well, that, I mean, that was I... A, another one of the most difficult things actually, because you get these animal fantasies like Woodship Down, where the where the animals are basically humans. <laughs> they talk and they think like we do. Um, uh, and then you get like in Call of the Wild, you and um, Jack London doesn't do that. Uh, he's always you know outside the the animals, and they they behave in a more natural way. And I, I, this, my book is certainly more Call of the Wild in that, that they don't speak, they don't philosophize, they don't have, you know, long conversations. But they do I, I occasionally translate some sort of doggy language into a, you know, a yes or a no or a come. Um, and, and yes, they are clearly a bit more human in their emotional responses than, than actual real dogs. But I, did, I tried to keep at least one foot in reality there. So they're not fully anthropomorphized, but you're you're right. There's a little bit of a human taint to them. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing, though. Like, there's no way to say that this isn't how the mind of a dog <laughs> or a wolf operates. So, as it's far as generous. we know, this is. I mean, like, just the the interaction that Misha has with his mother, and like the way she slowly changes her behavior towards him kind of trying to make him more independent mm. and you know he's understanding it and the way you're describing it is like he's understanding like your your description of what he's experiencing is more complex than the actual feelings and emotions that he is experiencing and I think that, again, you know, like we were talking about a little bit off off air, if you just try to like, oh, what does my dog think? Snacks, food, fire, bad. <laughs> like he's going to sound like a caveman or like yeah, Frankenstein's yeah. monster, uh, you know, in some of these these early, early 30s universal pictures. Like, <laughs> you know, because like we know that dogs don't have this uh, sense of. uh language and and understanding like they understand tone and yeah. certain words or commands like you know come stay you know like but if you say oh do you want to go for a walk your dog will freak out 
But if you say, hey, do you want some chalk? The dog will also freak out because those words sound the same. Yeah. You know, well, there's, um, there's a famous quote from Wittgenstein uh, that if a, if a lion could speak, we wouldn't understand it. So it's not just that they don't have language, that their, their, their world is so much different. Actually, my, my very first book is a book called Hellbent, which is a book about a teenage boy who dies and goes to hell. It's kind of gross out comedy. But he's, he's killed by an ice cream truck with his dog. And they both go to hell, the boy and his dog. Uh, the, the, the dog's got a well, the dog's called Scrote. Um, and when he's in hell, the dog can speak. Uh, and, it's, and, you know, the boy's kind of quite excited about this. But his dog only has three words, um, two of which are uh, are pretty vile swear words. <laughs> that's his entire vocabulary. So that's yeah, an attempt to be a, a slightly more um, realistic insight into the mind of the dog, hellbent. But, I mean, that that makes sense like you know if you it's like trying to explain color to a person who has been blind since birth like there's no way to really put that in context unless you've seen the movie mask uh (laughs) with uh eric stoltz and and uh oh what is her name from Jurassic Park where she's blind and he's trying to describe colors to her and she doesn't understand it. So he takes her to the kitchen in this camp and takes like a potato out of a boiling pot and puts it in her hand. He's like, this is red and like (laughs) gives her some cotton. He's like, this is billowy. Like he's describing Uh, things in a way for her to understand. Like he takes her and like gives her like some plants. He's like, this is green. Like, she has no context. And like, that's the same thing with a dog. Like a dog doesn't understand complex, nuanced emotions, you know, like, like, Oh, my child is allergic. I can't keep this dog. The dog doesn't understand why it's being abandoned. Like it doesn't understand like, Oh, like, you know, the, the amount of free histamines in your, (laughs) your child's, you know, nasal cavities or, you know, circulatory system is like really causing some problems. It's like, Dog doesn't understand that. Dog understands. I had a family. I don't have a family. Like, yeah. But to, to just on that issue of dog intelligence. So um, there's lots of research comparing dogs and wolves, and it turns out that wolves are much more intelligent than dogs, way more intelligent than dogs. Um, but what dogs are that uh, they've developed one particular form of intelligence, which is understanding humans. You, you know, our voices and our faces. So the way that, that you know when you talk to your dog, your dog sort of looks at you and tries to work out what the hell you're saying, what you mean, and how to get how to respond to that in a way that makes you respond to them in a positive way. Whereas wolves don't do that. A wolf doesn't, a wolf doesn't look at you when you talk at it. Because <laughs> a wolf's thinking, you know, either is this thing a threat to me or can I eat it? Uh, but, so, but, you know, whenever people try and keep wolves in compounds, they're always escaping. They're just much smarter than dogs. Uh, but dogs have developed that one particular trait, which makes mm-hmm. us love them. Well, I mean, it's it's the the domestication, like it's a it's the trade off, like you were talking about. Like, there's a reason why the wolves will kill the dogs every single time, and there's a reason why the dogs can't uh, survive. I mean, with with wolves looking at you, the wolf doesn't care. Like you're saying, like you know, it's it's the three F's. Is it you know you know food fight? You know, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for food fight or. Uh-huh. friendship uh yes that uh, that's the that's the third f yes uh but, see, might do. <laughs> yeah. uh but but yeah like when a dog's not looking at you like that you know because a dog knows that 
you're not food you know at least most most of them um well, I, I do wonder if, if I if I drop down dead in our apartment here, uh, and there's no one to look after Monty. At what stage would he consider eating me? Um, I would think when he got to it is the same with cats. Like when it got to the point where like the survival instinct kicks in, like I have to eat. You know, yeah. hopefully they don't start with your face. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, at that point you're dead, so what does it matter? But like, you know, start with like kids. Calf, thigh, like those are big meaty you know, areas. There you go, like the big meaty areas. You know, like you know, he's, he's, quite old, he's quite an old dog now, and he's not got many teeth left. So uh, I, I'm not sure. I think he might have a. He'd worry at my buttocks, but I'm not sure if he actually managed to tear a, a lump out of it. Well, he's, he's, got, just... he's got claws still. You know, just <laughs> dig for a while. See. <laughs> Uh, that yeah, that got dark real quick. Like no, 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 your dog could totally eat you if you died. No, 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 he'd be fine. <laughs> like, You'd have to go to the face, I think, just to get in there. Suck took, my eyeball. That took out. a turn. Oh, that took that took such a turn. <laughs> uh, I I blame I, the angry nerd in the room. Yeah, well, you know, I I like to imagine every type of possibility, and like it's like, oh, well, how could this scientifically work? It's like, oh, well, he couldn't get at me. It's like, it's like, ah, oh, curses! He's wearing jeans. Wow, I can't get through this. Maybe that's why they go for the face because it's a lot easier. Yeah, you know? yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Face, hands, arms, whatever's exposed, like that. You know, I think that works. So. I think that's uh, pretty much going to wrap things up for us for, for today. Like, this has been a fantastic discussion. <laughs> what a spot to end on there. <laughs> yeah. You get my face by my dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what else could we, what could possibly top that? Um, but I want to reiterate uh, you are Anthony McGowan. That's M C G O W A N. So when you're looking it up on Amazon, uh, Dogs of the Deadlands. Um, drop September 13th. So if you're listening to this today on September 13th, when this episode drops, you can get it today. If you're listening to it after that, it's still available. So um, do yourself a favor, come out because I need to uh, get my own uh, copy. I got one of the advanced reader copies. And uh, uh, well, the, can I uh, say, so, so that, that's not got the illustrations, has it? Because the, the final version is the most beautiful illustrations by a guy called Keith Robinson. This is a lovely work of art in the book now. That's what I was I was just about to say. I'm like, because uh, we're on we're on video, I can show you. It's like, yeah, <laughs> illustration. Yeah. It's like picture goes here. So I'll just use my imagination and hopefully uh that's but I mean it does have a, a very nice uh picture on the cover, nice black yeah. and white picture, and it definitely evokes uh like what you were talking about with the wolf yeah. um standing on the on the uh on the farmhouse because you've got the uh the animals on the front and the looming uh cooling tower and structures in the background behind this dense forest uh during a snowfall which i i really like so i mean i do while i enjoy getting the uh advanced reader copies for free uh, I also like supporting the authors uh, with whom I have interactions, so I will definitely be picking this up. That's uh, very kind, Patrick. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. Um, you know, you have to support the art that you that you like. You know, and you know that's the thing. Like, people complain about, and I've said this a thousand times too. People complain about all the prequels, sequels, reboots, and spinoffs, 
but if they stop making money people will be forced to you know think originally and do you know original stuff and this is definitely something that i think uh should have more attention put on it like the fact that there are you know at this point you know third and fourth and fifth generation animals that have survived this you know inhospitable place where you know people uh, still do not live like they might you might go for a visit for a little while but nobody lives there anymore but it's this thriving uh ecosystem without the interference of humans and yeah maybe there's a lesson to be learned there <laughs> you know well, nature finds a way <laughs> well this kind of you know again this is a weird thing that i like and i found this in my research this just lends to me more credence to the alien seeding uh theory that uh, I, I, I'm guessing by the look on your face, you are not familiar with this theory. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it rings a fake bell, but uh, <laughs> so what? What the, the life on Earth comes from? Uh, humans, humans come from uh, aliens dropping humans into various uh, onto various planets, various ecosystems, just to kind of see what would happen. A very, very advanced c civilization, at least a type two or three. Um, It'll be a fun where, game to play. Well, every every creature on this planet adapts to its environment, with the exception of one. <laughs> we make our own environment. Right. Um, we we go in, we change it, we suit it, you know, instead of like, oh, uh, let me this looks like a good place to uh, gather a bunch of sticks and raise my eggs. Uh, <laughs> let me put this up in a tree to prevent it from predators. Uh, we have no, uh, like, we don't have claws or fangs. Uh, we can't run, can't swim, you know, worth a damn. Uh, we don't spit venom at people. Uh, <laughs> Metaphorically, some of us can. Yeah, but yeah. I, uh, I, I love the kind of creative possibility of that idea, but the it does come up against the, the, the problem that you can find the many of the steps in between are evolutionary steps linking us to earlier primates so <laughs> oh yeah i'm not talking about like dropped like as we are now i'm talking like let's let's we have these different species let's like basically oh, okay. planets or zoos like oh man like <laughs> i just took a trip to giraffe planet it was awesome but really no diversity like what if we what if we took like we got the giraffe planet right and we kind of like think about like a, a like an exchange student like all right we're gonna grab some of these antelopes and gazelles and we're gonna drop them on lion planet what do you think about that like you know obviously some but of it is like you talk about your epic trilogy or, or or quartet or quintet. Is this all part of that then? Hey, this is this is this is part of it. Yeah, like Excellent. there are. Thanks. I, like I want to get a giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might enjoy this. Like it's it's some wild wild stuff. Well, make sure you you get it shifted out of your notebook and onto your computer and get it. It's it's slowly it's slowly making its way there. Like I've got. I know, around a hundred pages written and then I've got far more notes like this. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the Tripods trilogy by John Christopher. Yes, um, yes, very much so. Uh, that's a huge, huge mm. influence on yeah. on this. Um, like, there's a lot. Actually, the first chapter, the prologue of that book uh, of of this massive story I'm working on, can be found in uh, my recent book. How much do you tip an exorcist? Uh, it's the short story. It's the last. Thank you. It's the last story of the book. It's called Winter's Discontent, and like in the in the story, like the people of the uh, before the main conflict happens in the in the story, there is this massive tripod that comes tromping across the land. Like that's, I've been fascinated with that since 1991, and I've implemented it in a lot of different stories. I didn't get to read the whole thing until I was almost 30 years old. I just kept rereading the first book over and over. And when I finally got to read the whole thing, I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I've only ever read the first book and I'd forgotten that it was a trilogy. I've, I've, uh, uh, I've got my old high school copy of, of it, which I stole from high school. But that was I'm amazed that, that um, the tripods and John Christopher was is a big um, player in America because he's a very British kind of writer. And the book, to, yes. you know, it, it, so I, I'm, I'm delighted that he's, uh, he's spread across, he's, his glory is spread across the pond. He's a fantastic writer. Another I'm, brilliant book um, for, for adults called The Death of Grass, uh, which hmm. I, I read a couple of years ago, which is a post-apocalyptic thing where there's a disease that's coming, a virus that kills all species of grass. So that's all, all the grains are gone, rice is gone, the, the grass that animals feed on. And so that, and that triggers this, uh, this post-apocalyptic dystopia. Great book. Interesting. Yeah, I'll check that out. That sounds good. I'm a I'm a big fan of any story where it's like you think it's like, oh, it's like a Viking society or like, you know, a, an agrarian society, but it's like, no, it's hundreds or thousands of years in the future, but people have kind of regressed. And that's what you know the, the tripod story is. It's like, you know, like, oh exactly. yeah, there was a clock in the town, but like Will's dad had a watch and it's like, whoa, <laughs> a watch. Like it's wild. Like they find the ruins of like New York and like a subway. And like, I, I love stuff like that. Like it's so like, that's what I want to write. So write what you love. Exactly. Write the story that you would want to read. That's how I look at it. So, yes, you have 52 books. Let's get back to talking about you as we wrap this up. Uh, as I said, half an hour ago. Um, let's, uh, you know, you've got all these different books. You won a Carnegie Medal for Lark. Um, so definitely check that one out. There's so many, like, the easiest way, I think, uh, check out the Wikipedia page. Because, yeah, no, nope, it's all that. that. And that that reminds me, what did we talk about specifically? All right, so this is this is the last thing. All right, uh, as as my frequent listeners know, I have uh, a severe case of ADHD, and sometimes I'll get ready to talk about something like we discussed off uh, off air before we started, because there was one specific thing I wanted to bring up. Now, with and you've said this has been happening in the UK as well with uh, folks over here in the US. Um, finally realizing their worth and what how valuable they are to their companies versus uh or to their employers versus the compensation that they receive for their 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 work so many people have 
ventured out onto into new uh, areas of employment. Maybe it's something that they've always wanted to do. It's like, I always wanted to work in real estate. Or I always wanted to work in the travel agency, or I always wanted to do X, Y, and Z. And people are finally taking that chance. And I know there are a lot of folks um, who I don't want to say are like stuck in a rut, but like they've gotten themselves into a situation where they're comfortable, they're happy. They may not be completely content, but they're stable and they're able to do what they need to do. And, you know, maybe they decide, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be a baker. And mm -hmm. so they take a chance and maybe something happens and it's like, well, obviously this wasn't meant to be. You uh, struggled for a while to get your work published mm -hmm. and you finally got your first book published and there was a slight issue. Uh, <laughs> why don't you tell the folks about this? Because you're going to yeah, do much well, more justice than I will. You know, it's a little bit more complicated just to give the, the background. So I wrote this, this what was become a YA book called Hellbent about the teenage boy dies and goes to hell. That was generally considered to be too mad and too strange and deranged to be published. But it got me an agent and the agent suggested I write something more commercial. So then I wrote a crime book, um, like a literary thriller called Stag Hunt. Um, now, but what, uh, and that got that got uh, quite a big book deal based just on the synopsis <laughs> and, and a couple of chapters. So, and because that was published, then I was no longer a weirdo, outsider, loser. So Hellbent got published as well. So it seemed that my career was going was going in the right direction. And um, the, uh, Stag Hunt came out, really nice hardback. Did 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 well in hardback. The paperback came out. Uh, there's a big supermarket chain here called Tesco, and Tesco bought forty thousand copies, which for the UK was a big deal. You know, it would have made it a bestseller in the UK. And the paperback looked beautiful, really great cover, great quotes on it. When it got delivered to the supermarket to Tesco, um, they ran it through their barcode scanner at the tills, and the barcode had been misprinted, so it didn't it didn't bleep, didn't ping. <laughs> it went. And so T Tesco just sent them all back to the publisher, um, Hodder Headline. Um, and Hodder said, well, look, we can put a sticker on top of these, uh, you know, give it the right barcode. But it's just too late for the supermarket chain. It's like, it's like Walmart. You know, they had their own supply issues. They had something else to, to come in then. So these 40,000 books all got pulped or burnt or whatever they do with them because they were unsellable and it cost so much to warehouse them. So I went from being the, the kind of hot young thriller writer to being the guy that got them, got the publisher stuck with this unsellable mass of, of, of books. Uh, so it was a real kind of up, then down. Um, and the thing is that, but the what, what saved me, I think, was my arrogance back then. So, you know, it's 25 years ago, and I just thought, it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, everything will be fine. You know, my new book will be really successful. It'll, you know, it'll, 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 it'll blow over. Um, uh, and it, it, it didn't <laughs> um, because you know, the publisher just had this, I had this stench of death around me from this catastrophe. It wasn't my fault. I got apology letters from the, the um, company boss, um, but just, they didn't then promote my second book at all. It, it, it sort of disappeared my second um, adult thriller. And so in fact, it was, uh, <laughs> I, I suddenly then went right down and it became, you know, a, a big struggle to get back up to where I'd been before. And it all, you know, most things that go wrong in my life have been my fault you know, bad choices, 
stupid decisions, mistakes. This was something I didn't do wrong, and it nearly, nearly destroyed my career. Um, you know, I, I have bounced back in the end, but it was, um, yeah, touch and touch and go. I mean, so that's so, definitely. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say that, that, you know, for most careers that that, that your your listeners choose, um, you know, how well you do in those is kind of up to you. I know things can go wrong, but basically, if you work hard and you're clever and you're focused you'll do okay with, with writing it's not just up to us you know you need that coin to come up on the right side several times you know just to get published you need that that bit of fortune mm -hmm. you know that the the right editor needs to read your book when they're looking for that sort of thing anyway and that that is out of your control and the barcode thing was completely out of my control so it's a terrible career terrible terrible life i'm going to retrain as a as a bookkeeper or an accountant or a a police officer i don't know <laughs> but it's but it's one of those things where it's like just because you've hit a snag and obviously this was a significant snag yeah um and it threatened you if you were like oh man like but you knew the quality of your work you know you you referred to it as arrogance but you knew the quality of your work like that's the that's the thing like knowing your worth knowing that you know, you have this ability, this skill. It's like, you know what? Like this happened, but it won't happen on the next one. Like I know that the yeah. next one will be. And like, that was your attitude. And I think that's the, the attitude that a lot of people have to have. Like, you know, uh, we discussed a little bit, like a year ago I was out of work and I took, you know, five and a half months. And I, I had one interview over all of that time and they went with somebody else and it's like oh like i you know my wife and i are going away for our anniversary and it's like if i don't hear back from anybody by the end of this week like i'm just gonna have to work in an amazon warehouse which i don't want to do but mm. at least i'll get paid and i know i'll get hired and out of the blue someone's like hey uh one of our mutual friends is looking for production assistance on a movie i've always wanted to work in movies <laughs> and yeah. that was last september and since then i've gotten to work with two oscar winners and a guy who wow. should have a handful of oscars um <laughs> you know i've met a bunch of really amazing people not just like yeah. you know actors and directors but like you know, the folks that work behind the scenes, I've learned so much about film. I've done five feature films. I've done commercials. I've done music videos. Like, like this is the best job that I've ever had. Like, I'm, you know, I'm very lucky to have a, a an incredibly supportive wife because this isn't consistent work. Yeah. Well, I suppose like, what I'm there with... with is that you had the skills and the abilities to seize that chance when it when it came, didn't it? So you needed you needed both, I suppose. You need both that 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 stroke of luck, knowing a guy that could get you in, and also you need that that um your own personal qualities and expertise. Yeah, it's it you know it's helped that you know I've had I, I got my first job in 1995, and I've had a lot of different jobs, and I've amassed a lot of different skills. And those skills are transferable over to different departments, you know, and it's also a good work ethic. You know, it's it's like, yeah, this is going to be hard and I'm going to be working 12 hours a day and it's going to be raining and it's going to be cold and I'm going to be uncomfortable. It's like, well, it's going to be raining and muddy. I'm bringing extra socks and shoes. 
you know, and that evolved into I'm going to buy better shoes that are waterproof. <laughs> and that evolved into like, now I have my waterproof shoes. Now I have my thick socks. So yeah, it's three degrees and there's a 40 mile an hour wind, but I've but got my layers. <laughs> yeah. Like my feet are good. I've got my layers. I learned about heated vests, which are amazing. And, you know, I, I've also gotten to, you know, through the, the work that I've done, people will, will, you know, call me or message me be like, Hey, I have this job that's coming up. You know, this is what it's doing. Like I've been able to work on commercials with the, uh, the, the dancing robots from Boston dynamics, which Uh-oh. by the way, Amazing. even in real life look like they're CGI. Really? Oh. Yeah. They're, and they're, <laughs> but they are genuine. Yeah. That it's not fake. That whole thing. I've seen it on, on YouTube. They're real. No, there is a, uh, there is a, uh, there is a new one that I actually operate the spotlight on and you can almost see my silhouette, <laughs> oh, but no, cool. they are, they are real. And the Boston dynamics people do not like it when you suggest that they might uh, uprise. Cause there was the thing comes up the stairs and comes around a corner and I don't see any, but they basically yeah. have what looks like a big Xbox controller that they use to move these things around. Right. And, you know, I mentioned to one of the guys, I was like, oh, man, you know, I saw this thing walking around and there was nobody controlling it. I'm like, oh, that's it. That's the uprising. He's like, no, no, no. They just they just observe the world. They don't judge it. He goes, and I'm like, yeah, yet. And he's like, that's not how this works. It's like, whoa, OK, sorry. We're in a creepy abandoned factory that definitely gives me Terminator vibes. And there's this robot thing walking around like all yeah. weird. And then later when we're filming the dancing scene. They're, we're doing a quick safety meeting and the ad says all right make sure you're not near the robots because when the robots are dancing they're not observing the world uh, and they will hit you yeah. and it's like those are not words i ever thought i would hear well, it's because the the robots do one <laughs> of two or do a couple of different programs and like one of them is if you put the the dancing program in like that's what they're doing they're not looking around and like doing their observational function, like looking for abnormalities in, in machinery, they're dancing. And again, it's so weird to see in real life. Like they're not big, but like they, they look CGI, even in real life. It's like, I know that thing is right there, yeah. but like it looks fake, but like, you know, you take you've taken this chance. You're like, oh, you know, this is my second book, and you've done 50 books since then. Like it's, yeah. it's the perseverance. It's like I know it's scary. You're stepping out of your comfort zone. You're trying something new, and you're in your taking a chance. And like you said, sometimes there are circumstances that are beyond your control. You know, and I think that's the the other thing is like know what you can, uh, what you can control, and what. Uh, mm. You know, take responsibility for your actions. It's like, well, I shouldn't have done X, Y, and Z. But, you know, A through W weren't my fault. Like, the all these things that happened, like, you know, like the barcode thing. That's not something that you did, you know. And they offered a solution, and Tesco was still like, mm, we'd still rather not. And it's like, now you have 40,000 books that, where'd they go? Like, I'd like Landfill. to think that they weren't. Uh, I'd like to think that they weren't burned. I'd like to think that they were recycled. So that's what I'm going to believe. 
yes they were they were they put him into one of those like big industrial shredders and like yeah. kind of put him back into like paper form and like they use that to print your next book so that's that's what i'm that's what i'm going with that's the more i know it's hopeful and optimistic but that's what i'm going <laughs> to go with because we could use some more hope and optimism in in the world today Patrick, you're so, not the angry nerd. You're the optimistic, positive vibe nerd now. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to kind of branch out a little bit. <laughs> but uh, I want to thank you so much. I know we said an hour, and it's been well over uh, an oh, hour and a half. At this by. Point. I really enjoyed it, Patrick. <clears throat> and you are welcome anytime you put anything out, or you just want to, like, hey... I want to come on and, and shoot the shit about like, you know, evolution. And, you know, I would, I would love to have a conversation with you and my wife ashes who uh, in her, uh, in her degree, she has a, uh, a concentration on genetics and evolution. And oh, I think cool. we could have a, a fascinating conversation about, you know, wolves and dogs and how, yeah. how we've gotten to where we are. I'd love that. Uh, but again, Dogs of the Deadlands, Anthony McGowan dropping September 13th. Uh, feel free to pick this up as, long, as well as uh, any of the other books of his that strike your fancy with 50 plus of them. I'm sure there's something that you're going to find that you're going to enjoy. So uh, again, Anthony, thank you so much. Uh, where can folks find you uh, social media wise or website wise? I'm on Twitter, easy to find there. Most of my uh, creative social media work goes into Facebook, which I know it's uh, it's for the oldsters, it's for the old dudes. So, but yeah, uh, follow me on or friend me on Facebook. I turn nobody away. It's an interesting strategy when it comes to social media. <laughs> I won't turn anybody away, but you might find out that you're blocked a month later. Uh, no, I don't want to be part of your diet pill pyramid scheme, but thank you for offering. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and uh, I'll be back to wrap things up. And uh, yeah, so we'll be right back.